0: Anyone here enjoy being confused? No. I do not like being confused. I don't like being lost. You probably feel the same way. Um, Whether you're looking for your car in a large parking lot and you have trouble finding it, or you're following someone and they just speed through a yellow light, or you're listening to someone tell a story and they're jumping from idea to idea. It's, It's not fun being confused or being lost. But at the same time, many people like the challenge. This is why we go to escape rooms. This is why we have scavenger hunts. We like the challenge of possibly being confused. And I remember um, a few years ago, we did a young adults group, we went to a giant corn maze. And corn mazes is, is pretty much just you being lost and confused the whole time and hoping that you find the right exit. Some people might think there's a strategy to it, but usually when you get to the front, it'll say, here's a sign of the estimated time it will take you to get through this maze. And it's usually pretty accurate, an hour, two hours, however long it is, depending on the size. Um, And and by the end, when you get through it, you come out and you realize the exit is probably about 20 feet from the entrance. Even though you just spent an hour of being confused and and lost, dead end, dead end, whatever. Maybe you ran through the corn to get to the exit because you're running out of time. Um, it's, it's difficult. It can be lost, confusing. Imagine, though, you start going through a corn maze and your friend sends you a message and they say, hey, I actually have an aerial view of the entire maze. I can see the whole maze. So if your goal is to get through this maze, just put me on speakerphone and I can walk you through where to get and where to go. That way you can get through the maze as quickly as effectively. Now, you probably wouldn't get your money's worth doing that because what's the fun of the confusion, if you know where to go already. But in life, no one really likes hitting dead ends. No one really likes being lost or confused. And in fact, those dead ends that we run into in life can cause us a lot of hurt. They can cause us to miss out on what God has in store for us or blessings, or we can just spend our whole lives lost and confused. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, it says, "'For we walk by faith and not by sight.'" And this verse will stress the importance of living life by faith and trusting in God and his plan for our life and not what we can see directly in front of us, not a sight-led perspective. Our bodies deteriorate, our senses, they can't reveal the whole truth, but God through his spirit will never cause us to misstep. That's a life of faith. And I believe that most Christians understand this concept to a certain degree. We talk about salvation by grace through faith. It is the faith that God has given us that we've placed in him that gives us eternal life. It's through God. Yes, faith is needed at salvation. But where we can get confused and where we can get lost is our salvation not only requires faith, but we are called to a life of faith. Every single day, not just one time when you pray a prayer for the forgiveness of your sins, but every single day we are called to be living lives of faith. Doesn't mean we close our eyes, doesn't mean we ignore forms of logic or any physical evidence, but it means that even though we are unable to see the whole picture, we trust in God, in his word, and his leading that we can receive that from him. So, what we're going to hopefully understand as we dive more into 2 Corinthians 5 is that God desires followers who live every day by faith. God desires followers who live every day by faith. Many people take that first step, and yeah, it's great, but we need to live every day by faith. A great quote by Charles Spurgeon he said, A little faith will bring your soul to heaven, but a great faith will bring heaven to your soul. Now we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21. And this passage is given in light of walking by faith and not by sight. Before we continue to read God's word, let's pray together that the spirit would reveal to us what we should be learning. God, we ask that you would teach us. We ask that you would convict our hearts, that you would show us areas where we need to be led back to the cross in repentance, that you would give us direction to our steps, that you'd shine a light in this dark world, and that we could follow you, obey you each day. We ask that you would teach us, convict us, provoke us, and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Starting in verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. So what is the difference between someone who lives by faith and someone who lives by sight? That, that is the question we hope to discover this morning. And the first way we see that in this text is a person who lives by faith will see the world differently. A life of faith will see the world differently. Look back at verse 16. It says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. No one. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. And over the past few weeks, as a church, we've been going through the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we recently saw the conversion of Saul, who was this Pharisee, this zealous Jewish leader, and he was persecuting Christians, tracking them down, taking them imprisoned, back to the capital to be punished. And what happened? On this trek on the road to Damascus, God blinded Saul and he came to faith in Jesus. How did that happen? How was there such a radical shift in his life? In the process of being drawn to Jesus, his eyes were opened. His eyes were opened both metaphorically and physically for Saul. He saw life differently. God blinded him, revealed himself to him, and then his eyes were opened. He could see. The people he was traveling with were still the same. The roads he was walking down and the cities he went to, they were still the same. But through eyes of faith, Saul saw the world differently because of a real encounter with Jesus. Even to the point where he's given a new name. He's no longer called Saul, but he's called Paul. And he says, I regard no one according to the flesh. He's the one who wrote Second Corinthians. He means to say, I once lived and acted according to my own ways, my own desires, my own choices. My own understanding is how I lived. My own logic, I trusted in my own wisdom. And because of that, I disregarded Christ. I didn't see any need for Christ. I didn't see any real desire to to make him Lord of my life. There was no need for that. But through what Jesus has done for me, I realized I was missing out on something. Though I saw him physically in the flesh, Paul did, he saw no use for him. But now through faith, real faith, his worldview has been changed. He realized he was radically missing something. And what changed? Through a life of faith, he now can see from a spiritual perspective. He doesn't just see things on a physical dimension. He's been made aware of what it means to walk by faith. And that means seeing the spiritual realm around you. When your worldview has changed, you see the spiritual realm. Now, some people get a little freaky when you say that word, spiritual realm. I don't know, that's kind of weird. You, know, you think the things you've heard on TV or you've read in books with psychics or witch doctors or people trying to improve their spiritual energy or chakra or chi, right? We hear these words. And we kind of very easily in the West downplay the idea of the spiritual realm or the seriousness of it, or even if there is a spiritual realm. However, scripture is clear. There is a spiritual realm. It's all around us. And it isn't what many people think it looks like or have heard it to look like, but it's called a battlefield. The spiritual realm is a battlefield. And many of us are walking around in no man's land blind in this battlefield. And we're surprised when we get hurt when we get burned, or when we fall into temptation. A few chapters later in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh as humans, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to Christ. We are all in a spiritual battle. This country and this city is a war zone. Your family is under attack. This church is under attack. Your own soul is under attack. Even your mind is under attack. And this passage should tip us off that our greatest enemy is in fact spiritual. Your greatest enemy today is a spiritual enemy. Your greatest enemy Monday morning is a spiritual enemy. It's not a group on the other side of the world. That's not your greatest enemy. Your greatest enemy is not a political party. It's not specifically the world elite. While they may do things through the power of spiritual powers that are against God, they are not your greatest enemies. The spiritual enemies that we have try and trip us up and deceive us with physical means, but our greatest spiritual enemy is the blindness to our own sin and the attacks of the devil. They are. He may use human anger. He may use temptations. He may use physical means to trip you up, but you will not stand a chance in this battle if you fight back with physical means. You won't. When you use human weapons to fight a spiritual battle, you will fail. You will there is great spiritual danger around you. Are you living in a way that you can see that? When we walk by faith, we see it. Many people nonchalantly will say, I would never worship Satan. I can't believe there's even religions out there like that, right? But most of the world is pretty neutral. Yeah, there's like the the crazy extreme, spiritually bad. And then there's Jesus and he's spiritually good. And then we have Most of the world here in the middle, spiritually neutral, right? That's kind of the idea a lot of people have. The world around us is not neutral. It isn't. We're in a spiritual battle. The devil wants you to think it's neutral. He wants you to go in life just doing whatever, having fun. Everything is neutral. Many people champion the fact that there is a separation of church and state. And while there can be some good things from that, The state is not a spiritually neutral setting. It's not. Our government, political parties, you think they're spiritually neutral? You think they're making decisions that are just morally okay? You know, they're not really making a moral decision one way or another. You think our public school funded administrations are just making morally neutral decisions? You think our healthcare programs funded by the government are just morally neutral? I think the past two years, let alone the past 10, 20 years, we can look back and say the world and its powers and its decisions apart from a spiritually good influence is not neutral. It makes spiritually bad decisions. It does. They do. They choose things that are not of God. When I think of our healthcare, I think how many, even for the past many years, how many pharmaceutical companies will influence decisions to make money, to get paid more, or encouraging surgeries that are just unnecessary, or even pushing the less useful in society towards made. You know what? You're not really useful anymore. You should consider this process. This is not spiritually neutral. This is dark, and people are being deceived by that. And many of you are shaking your heads in agreement, and that's good, but spiritual warfare does not stop with these big ideas or these big ideologies. What does it matter if you choose to homeschool your kid, but you let them watch whatever you want, they want, listen to whatever they want and have unfiltered access to the internet? Do you really think that the public school is the only spiritually evil place in the world? The music they're listening to has a spiritual influence on them. The shows and movies they're watching have a spiritual influence on them. The things they see and read on the internet have spiritual influences on them. This is not a neutral world. There is danger all around us. Entertainment is not just entertainment. It has a spiritual influence. And if you live by sight and not by faith, you will not see the root issue. You'll, Yeah, well, you might leave public school education or you might do this or that, but you're not attacking the root issue. You're just attacking the fruit in their lives. So how you view this world will vastly impact your reaction. Your response to danger will reveal what you revere. It will. Do you see with eyes of faith this battle that's going on because your souls are at stake? Ephesians 6 talks about putting on the armor of God to be protected and to effectively attack against spiritual attack. And we're in a constant war. We are. Verse 16 of Ephesians 6 actually talks about the shield of faith and how the shield of faith is useful to Christians to ward off the attacks of the devil. It says his fiery darts that he's shooting at us. Does your life reflect faith in a way that you are daily protected from these attacks? Now, daily attacks sounds a little overwhelming. And sometimes I can get overwhelmed and I'm sure you get overwhelmed by the idea of constantly being prepared and constantly being on guard against these dangers my own flesh rebelling against me, spiritual attack, temptation. It can feel hopeless. It can feel unendurable. But when I repent of my doubt in God's strength and I return to a faith-led worldview, I can see clear what is right in front of me and what is real reality, and not just physically, but spiritually. There's an awesome imagery of this in 2 Kings 6 with Elisha, in this situation, I, w- I would encourage you to read that chapter on your own time. Write that down. Awesome section of scripture. But Elisha is currently with his servant, and they're in a city, and there is an enemy army that is attacking the Israelites. And God is revealing to Elisha all the plans of this enemy army. So Elisha relays it to the Israelite king. And the army, the enemy army is getting mad. They're like, how do they know everything we're doing? And they hear about Elisha. So like, where is he? We're going to go get him. And one morning, Elisha and his servant wake up and they're surrounded by this enemy army. And they're like, what are we going to do? We're going to get destroyed. And the servant is scared and he's nervous. What's going to happen? We're so few, They're so many. And Elisha looks at him and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, from a human perspective, the servants are like, this guy's crazy. I can't believe I've followed this guy and I've been his servant for so long. We are going to get utterly wiped out by this army. There are a few of us and there is a massive army here. How can you say there's more of us? Do you see the reality, Elisha? Do you really see what's going on? We don't stand a chance. And then Elisha prays. He prays to God that he would open, that God would open the servant's eyes to see what's in front of him. And the Lord does. And what does the servant see? He sees a multitude of horses and chariots of fire surrounding the enemy army, far more than the army that stood in front of them was. And God provided and protected Elisha and his servant. Elisha could confidently trust in God. Why? Because he saw through eyes of faith. He saw reality. Yeah, there's a great danger in front of me, but my God is stronger. My God will protect me and I can see that. Is your confidence in God in the face of danger? Do you trust that he has the power to overcome spiritual attack? That he has the power to overcome your temptations, your own flesh? Do you? Do you believe what Jesus said in John 16, 33? He said, I've said these things to you that you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You can have peace, you can overcome temptation. You do not need to fear why, because Christ has overcome. He has defeated death, he has defeated the grave and he will win this spiritual battle. He's the king of the universe and he cares for us and he has given us the ability to walk by faith. There is a spiritual battle going on. And when you walk by faith, you can be well-equipped. You can. So we see the spiritual perspective and we see the spiritual battle, but it doesn't just stop there. What's the difference between someone who walks by faith and walks by sight? Someone who walks by faith will see ourselves and we will see others as a new creation. This is the second thing. We'll see ourselves ourselves and we will see others as a new creation. Pretty much we see people differently, not just our situation, we see people differently. We're gonna reread verse 16 and then 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. So we don't just recognize others or recognize our worldview through a faith-led perspective by people. Doesn't mean we disregard humanity. You know what? Flesh doesn't matter. Humanity doesn't matter. We're all just spiritual beings. Let's only focus on that. That's not what Paul is saying here, but he's saying we examine others from a different criteria. We don't judge them by what they have to offer to us physically or their knowledge that they have for us. And the Corinthians struggled with this especially here. If we know a little bit about Paul's ministry to the Corinthians, at this point, the Corinthians were actually embarrassed of Paul. They were embarrassed of him, even though Paul had planted this church there in Corinth. He planted the church. He wrote them a letter, 1 Corinthians, and then they were were having some trouble. They were having some issues with sin. They began to disregard Paul as a real apostle because other missionaries had come to the area. And they were kind of teaching things differently. They were acting differently. Like, you know what, Paul, he's poor. He doesn't really have much of a status. You know, look at him, he's suffering. How can he be a real disciple of God, let alone an apostle? We are the ones you should be listening to. We're the ones you should be obeying. And Paul actually writes another letter, which we don't have. He visits them. It's called the painful visit in order for them to understand that he is actually equipped by God. That is God who sent him. He was sent by God. So he has this painful visit with them. He corrects them. He rebukes them. And here he is calling them out. So 2 Corinthians 7 and 2 Corinthians 2 kind of give us a little insight into those visits and those letters he wrote. But Paul wasn't wealthy. He didn't claim to be wealthy. Yeah, he didn't have a ton of status. And yes, he did suffer. But it wasn't a coincidence that his life looked this way. It wasn't just, oh, that's just the way the cards fall. It's actually intentional. Paul had no interest in being wealthy like those other missionaries who claimed to know God had. But instead, instead, through a lens of faith, Paul purposefully desired to live just as Jesus did. To live just like he didn't follow in his footsteps. The reason that we're able to see and live through a life of faith is because we have been made a new creation. If you are a new creation, your desires for yourself and your desires for others and what you see as important and most valuable changes. The world around us doesn't just change, our desires change. The things we find are important change. In the letter to the church in Rome, Paul writes that everyone is dead in their trespasses and sins and is only by Christ that we're made alive again a new creation, and he is speaking from experience. God radically changed his life. He was opposed to Christ, and now he lives for Christ. And for every one of you who has believed this in your heart as well, this has taken place for you. You are a new creation. You are made new in Christ. You were dead in your sins, and through faith, you have been given the gift of eternal life and to be made new. Now, Jesus spoke of this in John 3 to Nicodemus. He said, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Nicodemus is a little confused. What does that mean? How can I be physically born again? I'm a big human. I'm a a large adult. How can I possibly be born again? That doesn't make sense. And and Jesus explains this to him and moves to the famous John 3.16 verse later in that passage to teach it is only through salvation of God that we can be a new creation, that we can be made new, a recreation spiritually. So what is a new creation? A new creation is someone who was saved by faith, who also continually lives by faith. We live by faith. It's not some secret spiritual experience that you have to follow certain steps to really see, but rather it is a new way of life. To be a new creation is a new way of life that is modeled after Christ. That's what it means to be a new creation when life is looked at through a lens of sight, just focused on what's right in front of you, we compare people based on what the world standards are. Who has the most to offer to me? Who should I be friends with? Who can really level me up in life to get to my next stage in life or help me intellectually better? Who has the most to offer me? Who's, who's doing the most? Who's most successful right now? Those are the people I wanna be around, see, spend my time with. That's a, that's a sight led perspective, but when you walk by faith, you will see success in yourself and in others differently. Paul understood this. I imagine it like a man who's swimming in the ocean. Let's say you're swimming in the ocean. You go underwater. You can't see. You try and open your eyes. It's kind of blurry. You have, don't really have a good idea of everything that's going around you. Is there fish underneath me? Are there sharks underneath me? Can I reach the bottom? Should I even be swimming here in the first place? You can't really get a clear image, but through salvation, God has offered us faith. And I like to picture this like for the sake of imagery, a set of goggles. God throws you the goggles here. Here's through eyes of faith. You can now see life differently. So you put on the goggles and you swim underwater. and Now you can see, you can see reality clearly. You can say, oh, I shouldn't swim over there. I should stay over here. Looks like maybe there's some riptide current under there or the sandbars this way. I'm going to move myself that way. But you can still choose to take the goggles off. You can still choose to go back to the old way, an old sight that you saw. But God has given you the ability to see life differently through eyes of faith, and you have responsibility to walk in that. But what can easily happen is months later or years later, down the road, we get hit with new temptations. Or maybe we slide back into our old temptations, our old ways of life. Yeah, I've professed faith, but I just don't feel like a new creation anymore. I felt like a new creation then. I don't feel that way anymore. I know God's word, but this is just so hard. How could I possibly be a new creation when I still fail? I still can't measure up. In similar words, you probably said what Paul did in Romans 7, I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing that I hate. The act of being a new creation is not a one-time event. While we have been made alive spiritually through the work of Christ, we must continually obey by choosing the life of faith over the life of sight. In scripture, we get the language of the old man versus the new man. Ephesians 4 says, put off the old man and put on the new man. Put off the old desires, passions, ways of life, and put on the new man, which is created in the likeness of Christ. Now, this is where we can trip up. This is where we can fail. Because, yeah, I've been made alive, but I'm choosing to live like the old man. I'm still living like that. Did you pray a prayer when you were young to believe in Jesus, that you would have faith in him, and assumed that that would be enough to sustain you? Are you relying on a prayer when you were a child to sustain your faith? Or are you relying on preaching on Sunday mornings or your small group leader to sustain your faith? That will fail. That will crumble. We have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ and we can walk in accordance to his ways because of the work of God in our lives. You are equipped to know righteousness in this twisted world. You must Follow God daily through the work of His Spirit. You shouldn't be relying on me. You shouldn't be relying on Pastor Aaron. You shouldn't be relying on Pastor Chris, your small group leader, your spouse, your friend, to carry you through life spiritually. God is the one who is sustaining those people in the first place, and God is the one who should be relying on to sustain you. It's a daily choice. Luke 9, Jesus says, If anyone would follow me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross daily. The old has passed away, the new has come. Why are you resurrecting the old man? Why are you going back to that way? You have been made new. That old man, that old way of life, that will never give you the joy and circumstances you're looking for. That will never provide for you the way you'd really desire. That will not give you lasting satisfaction. That will not take away your guilt or your shame. It only adds to it. It makes it worse. You are a new creation because of Christ live in that. Now, when I think of my personal experience, it can be hard to trust God when what's in front of us seems like what's best. I I think I can achieve what's best for myself. When God has been teaching me the value of faith and walking in faith every day, and I don't think I do a perfect job at this, but obviously I'm, I'm repenting and following Christ. My wife and I were having a conversation recently about how it seems like God often takes us a little bit further before He really gives us what we think we desire. What seems most logical and straightforward is not usually God's plan immediately for our life. He made us wait in our relationship before we were married. There were some things we need to work through before we could actually get married. When we were first married, we were looking at houses, and this was just as the housing market was going up, and we were putting in offers, and one house we really wanted, We got outbid by $521 on this house. And six months later, God provided a house and he provided for us something far better than if we actually had gotten that house in the first place. We wanted to have kids. God made us wait. He has a better plan than us. Even recently, there was a moment where we had an opportunity for a great deal on a house. We were really excited. We thought this was a sure thing and it fell through. And I was disappointed. I looked at my wife and I was like, aren't you disappointed about this This is where we wanted to be? And she's like, well, this is just the way God has been teaching us lately. This is just what it means to walk in faith is pretty much what she was saying to me. And I was like, wow, she was an encouragement to me to see, to walk in faith every day is to trust that God's plan for my life and for her life, and that he can take care of my kids and my family far better than I can. He has a good plan for my life. And while I was excited for that opportunity, He's got something better, even if the better means just more contentment and more reliance on him in the future, even if that's what better looks like for the future. So to be a new creation is to lean on God and trust in him in every circumstance, in the good and the bad. And that means we look at Christians differently, we look at non-Christians differently, and we understand the world around us. Now, we're gonna go back to verse 18. And 19. And at this point in, in the message, it would be a great opportunity for us where I would normally lead into communion. And we are going to take communion at the end of the sermon. But I think just for the sake of integrity to this passage, I'm going I'm to teach what I would normally teach for communion. I'm going to intro it. But I want you to think back to this when we take communion after the sermon. So verses 18 and 19 say this, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So as I mentioned, we're gonna take communion at the end of the sermon. There's still a little bit more to go through this passage, but I want you to consider What does it mean that God has reconciled us to Christ? What does that look like for us? It's not just the day of your salvation. It's not just way back then. To be reconciled is to be made right before God. Not only that, but to have a proper relationship with God. Our relationship with God has now been restored. That's what it means to be reconciled. Think of your pre-salvation life, what you were before God. We cannot be reconciled to God living in sin. We must first be saved to be reconciled. We were dead in our sins. We were destined for hell. There was no connection between us and God spiritually. It was broken. And you know what's the most embarrassing part of all this? Even though our relationship with God is broken because of our own sin, God is the one who pursues us. If you think of like how this would look in human relationships, it's almost like a very little child that threw a temper tantrum and got into a fight with their sibling and took their stuff and storms off. And what happens? The parents talk to that child. They bring them back in front of their sibling and they say, what you did was wrong. You need to apologize and restore this relationship with your sibling. It's kind of embarrassing to think that that's what it took for us. God pursued us chased us down and reconciled with us. Not because he did something wrong. We were the ones who broke the relationship in the first place, and yet he still chased us down. He brought us back to him and he forgave us. He was both parties in this sake. It's, it is pretty embarrassing that he pursued us, he initiated, and he recon, he's the reconciler. It's not just some polite ignoring either. God's not just like, you know what? I love you, welcome home. Your sins, I've forgotten about them. No, it's not just, he isn't just forgotten about your sins. He doesn't look at our sins and say, I'm just gonna ignore them. Come on back into communication with me. No, through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, your sins are forgiven, wiped clean. It's God's work through his death that our sins have been forgiven. That's the only reason you're justified. That's the only reason you can be reconciled to Christ. That's the only way we can be adopted to God. And God calls us sons and daughters to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He has adopted us. He has reconciled us to him through what Christ has done on the cross. Our trespasses and sins have been forgiven. Do you disregard what God has done through Christ's death on the cross and reconciling us to him? Or do you cherish what Christ has done and you seek to live honorably in light of that? And we're going to take a moment later to reflect on that, but let's move into our our final section of Scripture. Verse 20 to 21. Remember, we're asking, what's the difference between someone who lives by faith and someone who lives by sight? To live by faith is to act as an ambassador of reconciliation. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. In light of what Christ has done for us through reconciliation, we as Christians have now been given the task to reconcile with others we're called ambassadors. What does that mean? It means we speak on behalf of someone. That's what it means to be an ambassador. It's like a representative, someone who speaks on behalf of Christ in this sake. So the ambassador's message, if you are an ambassador, your message is Christ's message. And what is that message? Be reconciled. Believers have now been given this message and we are mouthpieces of God. We're God's mouthpiece of reconciliation. We proclaim this good news to any and all who would listen and receive it. Now, the primary goal of reconciliation is to restore the unbelieving into proper relationship with God. That's the primary goal of reconciliation. You were once far off, and now you are brought near. But a secondary benefit of reconciliation is the effect it has on human relationships. We should treat human relationships differently. If it influences all areas of life, It should. Paul's frustration with the Corinthians, them not listening, them embarrassed, them disregarding him, them downplaying his authority. Paul didn't run from that. He didn't say, you know what? I'll go share the gospel with those that actually care. I'll go focus on church planning some more. I'll go focus on my missionary work more. He didn't leave the Corinthian church. He didn't run. He pursued them, he chased them down. He wrote more letters. He visited them. He didn't say, I've had enough of this. We're done. Why? For the purpose of reconciliation. So they could be mainly restored to God and that their relationship could ultimately be restored too. Now, I don't like conflict. I don't know if you like conflict, but there comes a certain point when the pain of conflict is outweighed by the issue that's going on around you or walking on eggshells. You know, there's been an issue and you're like, I'm gonna ignore it, I don't like conflict. But walking on eggshells just becomes too much. The conflict needs to be dealt with. Now, I once had a boss that had some issues. And no, it's not my current boss, if that's what you're thinking. but he would sometimes freak out. He would get upset. And it was awkward to be around this guy when it happened. And he had those outbursts. People would just look down. They wouldn't look at him. They would ignore him. They wouldn't want to be around him. But one time I remember he pulled me aside and he said, Hey, look, I messed up. I shouldn't have acted that way. I shouldn't have said those things. Like, I'm sorry that I did that. Are we good? And then after that, it's like, wow. Yeah. You know what? it's all good, I forgive you, we're, we're all good. Then you can actually enjoy working with that person. You actually have some fun times after that because that relationship has been fixed and restored. But the issue needed to be dealt with first. Our job as Christians is to tell others, you can have this with God. You can have that with God. You can actually enjoy being in his presence. You can speak to him and he will listen to you, but your sins need to be dealt with first. And not only does it affect your spiritual relationship, this impacts your relationship with those around you. You can find true restoration, true reconciliation. So how should we act? If we are ambassadors of God's message, how should we act? Three things, we proclaim Christ's message and not our own. If you're an ambassador, you will proclaim Christ's message. That means you don't fear, you don't get intimidated, you don't worry about what people are gonna say when you say this message, why? Because a real ambassador does not change the message that they have been given. We don't change God's word. We herald his truth that all can be reconciled. And it is his message and his act to reconcile. And this is the only lasting and effective truth and reconciliation project that you will find. Many people cherry pick sections of scripture in order to say what they think people want to hear about God. You know what? God is... Going to punish sin? I don't know. I don't like that. I'm not going to tell people about that passage of scripture. God is going to judge even Christians for how they've lived, both good and bad. I don't know. That's that's a scary passage in scripture. I'm not going to talk about that either. Let's just talk about how Jesus died for us. Let's just focus on that. And while that is true, we must herald the whole message of reconciliation. Why Jesus died. We are sinners, we are broken. Our good works apart from God are seen as filthy rags. We need his death. Could you imagine in times where medieval times where there's different cities with armies that would attack? Could you imagine a king sends an ambassador to a neighboring city to say, hey, I'm preparing to attack. You need to submit and allow us to win or we're gonna fight you. We're gonna take you down. Could you imagine if this ambassador goes as, hey guys, I know this king is gonna come and attack you. I don't really think it's the best thing for him to do. I don't really like it that he's gonna make war, but you need to submit to him. I know it's gonna really inconvenience your lives. It's gonna mess with the rhythms and routines that you have here over in this city. I'm so sorry. That would be ridiculous. Imagine if someone did that. Why then do we act that way with God's message? Why do we tiptoe around what he said when he actually knows what's best? He's not a human king that fails and doesn't understand life. He knows everything. And our job is to proclaim his message and not our own. The second thing is we proclaim it in a way that demands a response. That's the way we proclaim God's word. When we prepare to take communion and we recognize what Jesus has done, it demands a response. It does. Will I be reconciled to God through the confession of my sins or will I ignore that? Will I just do my own thing? Will I not take communion? Will I take communion in an unholy way? Or will I be reconciled to God? It demands a response. It's your option, but it still demands a response. In the same way, our message to the world and to others should demand a response. Here is what God's word says Will you repent and believe? Or will you keep living the life you're living now? Will you be reconciled to the Father? Or will you deny it? A response is needed. And just like every time we read the word of God, it demands a response from us. We should take it, let it influence our life, our worldview, or are we gonna ignore it? It demands a response and everyone is given the choice when they're presented the gospel, will you believe or will you choose not to? A response is needed. And the last thing is we leave the result of this message to God. We let God take control afterwards. After we've done our role of heralding God's word of reconciliation, we let God do the results. Paul later says, I planted, Apollos watered, speaking of the seed of faith, but it is God who gave the growth. It's, the, it's only God who's going to get the real response. And that takes the pressure off you. If you're an ambassador, yeah, you got to herald the message. You got to say the message. But if your hearers are disinterested, it's not your fault. We want to do a good job of this, but they're not denying your message. They're denying Christ's message. It's also a great reminder to us that God can save anyone. He can save even the most hardened of hearts. He saved Paul in his wickedness and brokenness. So who are you refusing to share the gospel with? Because they're not ready to hear the gospel yet. You know what? They just seem too hardened to the things of Christ. I'm not going to share the gospel with them. God can save even the most hardened sinners, and he often does. And those that we think are closest to hearing God's message sometimes are the most hardened to it that we may actually realize. So we share it in a way that once we're done, God's the one who gives the growth. It's not us. In our sin, we are all broken. We are all desperately wicked, but God has pursued us and he's given himself up for us.